If you need a Bible tonight, if you'll raise your hand. Let, let's make sure everybody has a Bible. Um, anybody need a Bible? Okay, great, good. Yeah, anybody, just keep your hand up. If you don't like the translation or anything, just take it up and read. Also, uh, next Sunday, uh, going to have an exciting, very exciting Sunday, next Sunday morning and Sunday evening. You know, Jesus left us two logos. You know, Christianity has logos. You know that? The two logos of Christianity are baptism and communion. Next Sunday morning, we're going to have a baptism. Oh, no, 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 I got it backwards. Next
rode his donkey down this same mountain into the city. But the Jewish leaders didn't share their sentiment. This was why Jesus had cursed the fig tree, a symbol of the nation. Israel itself had been cursed. A lot had happened that day in the temple. Jesus had avoided the theological traps thrown at him. He had launched a fiery tirade, torching the Jewish hierarchy for their hypocrisy. When he had left the temple that day, the die had been cast in Israel's future. Judgment now was only a matter of time. The fig tree, in essence, had begun to wither. And as Jesus leaves Jerusalem and the temple, he heads east toward Lazarus' house in Bethany. He and his men cross a narrow valley called the Kidron Valley. Just beyond, he climbs up the Temple Mount. He climbs up across from the Temple Mount. Here's what he does. He leaves the Temple Mount. He crosses the Kidron Valley moving east. He climbs up to the top of the Mount of Olives. On our tours to Israel, the best, the most panoramic view of Jerusalem is always from the top of the Mount of Olives. Usually what happens is the bus driver makes you close your eyes until you get right around to the, to the edge of the Mount of Olives and then he has everybody open their eyes all at once and there stretched out before you is the classic scene, the holy city of Jerusalem. From the top of the Mount of Olives, you're 150 feet above the city. From there, every photo becomes a postcard. And it was from the top of Olivet that Jesus, remember, at the end of chapter 23, he wept. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. How it broke his heart that the people of Israel, God's people, had rejected him as their Messiah. And Jesus predicted that the house of Israel would become desolate. And he elaborates on this prediction in chapter 24. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now the disciples were Jews. And of course it had been a rough day for Judaism. Suddenly their patriotic pride sort of rises up. And they say, oh Lord, not all is wrong with our religion and our nation. My, look at our temple. It's majestic. It's beautiful. And indeed it was. The temple, you see, had been built by Zerubbabel and had been renovated by King Herod. Herod's refurbishing efforts had taken 46 years. He'd invested vast wealth and effort to transform the temple into one of the wonders of the ancient world. Listen to how Josephus describes the temple in the first century. The exterior of the building lacked nothing. It astounded both mind and eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was purest white. Josephus also mentions that some of the stones that were used to build the temple were enormous, the size of a railroad boxcar. Here's some of those same stones. You can see from the guy all the way up the top, all the way down to the end, that was one huge stone. The temple was an impressive source of pride for the Jewish people. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? He's pointing out to the temple before him. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, your source of pride, he says to the disciples, is about to be pulled down and pillaged. It was 40 years later, in 70 AD, when General Titus Vespasian brought his Roman legions to Jerusalem to put down a Jewish revolt. Even though a few Jewish dissidents were held up inside the temple, the general ordered the troops to preserve the temple, to not attack the temple. As a matter of fact, there's a picture in Rome of uh, it's on the Arch of Titus that actually commemorates his victory of Jerusalem and the Romans carrying back to Rome a lot of the temple treasures. But it's interesting. Although the, the general ordered his soldiers to preserve the temple, one of Titus' soldiers 
he got trigger happy. And rather than being patient, rather than waiting, he disobeyed his orders. And he threw a torch into the compound. As the buildings began to burn, the heat became so intense that those gold plates that Josephus had written about, they melted. And the liquid gold ran down into the crevices between the stones. The greedy Roman soldiers, they pulled down every single stone in an attempt to retrieve the gold. Thus fulfilling Jesus' words that not one stone shall be left upon another. On our tours to the Temple Mount, you can see these very same stones right there at the bottom of the The bottom of the mount. These were the stones that Jesus talked about that would be pulled down. That not one stone would be left upon another. You can go there today and see the fulfillment of this prophecy. In the end, Judaism had no reason to boast. She was bankrupt spiritually. And God was about to foreclose on her hypocrisy. Verse 3 tells us, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives. You know, it's interesting that the Mount of Olives not only figured prominently into Jesus' first coming to earth, but it would also be the center of his second coming. In Zechariah 14, verse 4, we're told that when Jesus returns to punish his enemies and establish his kingdom, where is he going to touch down first? He's going to set his foot down right on the top of the Mount of Olives. Remember when Jesus ascended to heaven, he went out to the top of the Mount of Olives and he was taken back up into heaven, and the angels told the disciples, as you see him ascending, likewise, you'll see him come. At his second coming, he'll touch down on the top of the Mount of Olives. The earth will split in two, and he'll walk into the city of Jerusalem, and he'll establish his kingdom there on the Temple Mount. You know, one of the kicks about going to Israel is to experience, you know, the places where Jesus walked, that you can actually walk where Jesus walked. But to me, there's nothing like standing on top of the Mount of Olives. Because there, not only are you walking where Jesus walked, there you're standing where you know that one day he will stand again. That's pretty thrilling. That just as he left from there, that's where he'll return when he returns to this earth. And here Jesus is sitting, teaching his disciples, where one day he's going to be standing and ruling the earth and defeating his enemies. And he teaches them about the end times. The next two chapters, in fact, are known as the Olivet Discourse, fitting, because they were taught there on the Mount of Olives. Now Jesus begins with a question. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now the sermon that follows has three points. Verses 3 through 14 Describe the sign of the end times as they relate to the world at large. Verses 15 through 35 discuss the signs as they directly relate to the nation Israel. And verses 36 through 51 involve the implication of these signs for the church. Jesus had mentioned the destruction of Jerusalem. It was an event that the disciples in their minds associated with the end of the age and the second coming of the Messiah. And they were right. Both Old Testament prophecies, both the Old Testament prophecies and Revelation, they tell us that when Jesus returns, Jerusalem will be under siege. What the disciples didn't understand is that the city would be destroyed many, many times beforehand, before the final battle. As a matter of fact, over the last 3,000 years, Jerusalem has been conquered 38 times. People are still warring over Jerusalem today. And that will be the case when Jesus returns. But Jesus uses the disciples' interest in Jerusalem to answer their question about the end of the age and the signs that will precede His second coming. He begins, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Toward the end of the age, many false messiahs or false Christs will come. It's interesting that before the life of Jesus, though there was a messianic fever in the air, though there was this expectation for the Messiah, no one was rising up claiming to be him. There's a reason for that. There were no messianic counterfeits 
prior to Jesus for the same reason that there's no such thing as a counterfeit $200 bill. Why are there no counterfeit $200 bills? Because they don't make a real $200 bill. You know, before you get a counterfeit, you first have to have the real thing. The real deal has to come along before someone can try and manufacture a copy. Thus, that's why that after Jesus, before him there were no false messiahs, but after him suddenly, false messiah after false messiah after false messiah, there had been a whole succession of these false Christs. The first one of prominence was in 132 A.D. It was a man by the name of Simon bar Kokhba, a Jewish rebel who led a revolt against Rome. He promised his followers that none of them would be harmed. When he led them into battle, half a million Jews were slaughtered. Here's a list of a few more modern false messiahs. Jim Jones. Remember him? Drank the poison Kool-Aid down there in Guyana in 1978. Sun Young Moon, the Korean founder of the Unification Church, or Moonies. Remember the wacko from Waco? David Koresh, he founded a group called the Branch Davidians. Sergei Torop, perhaps you've heard of him. He's a former Russian, Russian traffic cop who has a 4,000-member cult in, the, in Siberia. Benjamin Cream is a nutcase who goes around the world suggesting that a false Christ named Matria is alive on earth and awaiting his day of declaration. Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda, he's from Puerto Rico, and he's duped for about 100,000 followers with claims of being the Christ. And then, of course, in 1997, you remember Marshall Applewhite. He's the guy who convinced 39 followers to commit suicide so they could hitch a ride on the supposed spaceship that was trailing the Hellbop Comet. And if the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, tarries, you can be sure that more will follow. Jesus said that there would be false Christs and false messiahs. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. The Norwegian Academy of Sciences has concluded that over the last 3,500 years of world history, there have been 14,531 wars. Out of those 3,600 years, only 292 have been years of peace. That means over the, over the last three and a half millenniums on this earth, there has been a war in the world 92% of the time. Jesus said there will always be wars and rumors of wars. Look at it this way. There's been one minute of peace for every four hours of war. Wars and rumors of wars are frequent occurrences. As long as man is in charge of planet earth, his greed and his selfishness will guarantee that there will be continual conflict between nations and their citizens. Well, verse 6 says, See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Jesus is telling us that these false Christs and frequent combat are standard fare on planet earth. When you see it, don't panic. It's not the end. But nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. And catch this, the Greek word for sorrows, some of you are very familiar with it, it's the word for labor pains. Labor pains. You've heard of Braxton Hicks contraction? Rebecca's probably had some of these. You know, throughout your pregnancy, you have these false labor pains. They occur irregularly. They're mild contractions. But the childbirth is signaled by an increase in the frequency and force of the contractions. Well, false Christs and military conflicts, they're sort of like Braxton Hicks. I mean, they're going to come. But when their frequency and their intensity begins to peak, that's when you know that the end of the age and the birth of God's kingdom is near. You know, it took until the last century before the earth saw its first world war. Now we've seen two. And for the last 60 years, we've been sitting on the verge of the third world war. 
Did you know that more people have died in the last century than in any other time in history? The world today is armed to the teeth. Weapons of mass destruction, they're all over the place. More powerful weapons in the hands of more radical people. Did you know there are 42 armed conflicts in the world even as we speak? One scientist was asked what weapons will be used in World War III. He replied, I don't know, but I know what weapons will be used in World War IV. Sticks and stones, because that's all that will be left after World War III. Notice Jesus also mentions the rise of famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Every day in the world, 854 million people go to bed hungry. This is astonishing. 16,000 kids die of hunger-related causes every day. One child dies every five seconds because of starvation, malnutrition. Every 3.6 seconds, someone on the planet, somewhere on the planet, a person starves to death every 3.6 seconds. Hey, famine, it's all around us. And speaking of pestilence, Every day there are new reports of drug-resistant strands of new viruses. This past March, the CDC announced a shocking study, shocking for all of us parents. It said that one in four teenage girls in America now admit to having a sexually transmitted disease. Unbelievable. Worldwide, 40 million people now live with HIV-AIDS, which results in 3 million deaths annually. There are 400 million cases of malaria, and one million fatalities every year. The World Summit for Children, a UN organization, reported every day in the world, 1,400 kids die from whooping cough, 4,000 from measles, 2,150 from tetanus, 2,750 from malaria, those are the kids, 11,000 from diarrhea, and 6,000 from pneumonia. I'm telling you, pestilence is everywhere. And earthquakes. I checked this out. In the last 30 days, the world has experienced 409 quakes with a magnitude of 4.0 or greater. In the last 30 days. 13 at a magnitude of 6.0 on the Richter scale. The killer quake that was this past May 12th, that was responsible for 12,000 deaths in southwest China, it was 7.8 on the Richter scale. An underwater earthquake is what triggered last year's killer tsunami in Indonesia. Hey, catch this. What do Oregon, Indiana, southern England, Japan, China, Trinidad, Chile, the West Bank, Israel, Jordan, Iowa, Peru, Nevada, the Philippines, and Hawaii have in common? Do you think we covered it? What do all these places have in common? They've all been rocked by big earthquakes in just the last few years. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the 1980s saw 47 significant earthquakes. The 1990s recorded 57 such earthquakes. But from January 1, 2000 until now, the USGS has recorded 109 earthquakes measuring 7.0 or better on the Richter scale. There's been an obvious increase of earthquakes in strange places. Several years ago, Tim LaHaye, you know who Tim LaHaye is, he's the author of the Left Behind series. He was speaking at a Rotary Club meeting in San Diego. He said that the, for the first 15 minutes of his gospel presentation, the people were completely uninterested. His, his gospel uh, message was being met with great boredom. That's when an earthquake hit. He said right there in the banquet hall as he was talking, suddenly an earthquake hit. The table started shaking. The walls started rattling. The chi china started bouncing on top of the plates. It was amazing. He said for a few seconds there, great fear and panic filled the room. LaHaye said that after the earthquake, it was amazing how much more interested people became in his message. <laughs> hey, perhaps this is why the last days we'll see more and more earthquakes. God wants to wake people up and help them listen to his message. Wars and rumors of wars, false Christ, they're to be expected over the centuries. It's going to be standard fare. But when wars begin to expand and intensify on a global scale, and with earthquakes and pestilences and famine increase, that's when you know 
that the beginning of sorrows has come. Well, what comes after that? But the great tribulation. God begins to judge the planet. And he does, and as he does, the world takes out its anger on God's people, the Jews. This is what's going to happen when God begins to pour out his judgments on the earth. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In the Great Tribulation, this final seven-year period, we'll talk about that in a minute, the world will see another holocaust. He says here, they will deliver you up to tribulation. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Jews. The disciples, the first disciples, were all Jews. Right now, the United States stands by Israel as pretty much her only ally. And hopefully, we will remain a consistent ally. But how long that support will be sustained remains to be seen. One day, the day will come when the United States will withdraw her support of Israel and join in the Antichrist worldwide campaign to exterminate the Jews. They'll take you up. They'll, you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended. They will betray one another and will hate one another. You know, the day is coming when allegiances and treaties among nations will all break down. Intrigue and backstabbing and deception will be the foreign policy of all nations. Honor and ethics and honesty will become relics of the past. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Even in the Great Tribulation, spiritual deception will reach unprecedented levels. When the Holy Spirit's light and love through His church is removed from this world, all hell will break loose. Darkness will rule the roost. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Cold-bloodedness and ruthlessness and violence and cruelty will even become more commonplace on this planet. But, he says... He who endures to the end shall be saved. Notice this. Real faith in all ages is persevering faith. Real faith is always persevering faith. Colossians 1 verse 23 says to you and me that Jesus will present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight if we continue in the faith. Notice the condition. If we continue. Faith has to persevere. Hebrews 10 echoes the need for faith to persevere. It says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. I'm telling you, salvation in every age involves perseverance. We're told, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, after the church is raptured, the gospel is going to still be preached. Some folks teach that this verse means that before the rapture occurs, the church needs to spread the gospel to the four corners of the globe. I don't think that's true, not necessarily. For according to Revelation, in the Great Tribulation, God is still going to have his means of spreading the message of the gospel, spreading the message of Jesus to the world. It's just going to take different forms. Remember, 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to crisscross the globe preaching the gospel. In addition, two special witnesses will be seen in Jerusalem, again, preaching about Jesus. In fact, in Revelation 14, an angel flies through the sky proclaiming to the world the everlasting gospel. I mean, the good news is still going to be preached even after the church is gone. And if the gospel is preached, the implication is, is that people will be saved. You know, there are three types of believers in the Bible. Three types of believers. First, there are the Old Testament believers who trusted in the coming of the Messiah before Jesus arrived. And they had faith in the promise that God had given them. Second are those of us who are part of the church, who trusted in Jesus. You know, since his, his death and resurrection, we've seen what he's done for us and we've accepted his free gift. But there's a third type of believer in the Bible. These are the tribulation saints. These are the people that will decide to follow Jesus after the church has been raptured in the midst of this great tribulation and judgment on the earth. But there are those who will have to endure to the end to be saved. And the great tribulation will be a difficult time to be a believer. Persecution will be intense. 
opportunities to stumble will be great. Only those with a persevering faith will be saved. For tribulation saints, martyrdom will be the norm. And here's my question to you tonight. I hope you're not thinking, well, you know, if I miss the rapture, if I put off making a decision for Christ, if I miss the rapture, no big deal. I'll still have a chance to be saved during the great tribulation. Well, that's true. But here's my only question for you. If you can't live for Jesus now, what makes you think you're going to be able to live for Him then? I mean, if you can't live for Him now, are you going to die for Him then? Better to give your life to Jesus and be raptured with His church. The verse 15 continues to describe events that occur in the Great Tribulation, this final seven-year period. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let's backtrack a bit. Daniel chapter 9 predicts that 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years are determined to accomplish God's purposes for Israel. Daniel listed. The Bible calls this last week of Daniel's prophecy, this last seven-year period, the Great Tribulation. For seven years yet to come, the world will be punished, the Jews will be purified, while the church is partying down in heaven. Daniel 9 says that during the midpoint of this last seven-year period, a terrible event will occur on earth. He calls it the abomination of desolation. Jesus mentions it here. And history provides us a parallel so that we can understand the nature of this event. Two hundred years before Jesus, a Syrian ruler, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, he tried to indoctrinate the Jews with Greek culture and religion. You see, he hated the God of the Hebrews as the Antichrist will. And he tried to force the Jews to accept ways, the ways of the Greeks, the beliefs of the Greeks. Then they refused. He reacted with a vengeance. On a single day, in 170 A.D., Antiochus' army slaughtered 100,000 Jewish males, raped the women, and looted the city of Jerusalem. Antiochus himself entered into the temple and butchered a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar. He forced the priest to drink the blood of the pig and eat the raw pork. He smeared the remainder of the blood on the walls of the temple. And he set up in the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, a pagan statue, a Greek idol called Zeus. This was all that the Jews could stomach. They fled Jerusalem and they vacated the temple leaving it desolate. It was the abomination that caused desolation. And yet apparently Antiochus' actions didn't complete and fulfill the prophecy of Daniel. For 200 years after that now, Jesus is talking about the abomination of desolation as being still future. It associates it with the end of the age. Antiochus' abomination was a foreshadowing of another ruler who will rise up in this last seven-year period in this great tribulation we call him the Antichrist. And he too will wage war against the Jews. And the climax will just take over of Jerusalem. This blasphemous ruler will set up an idol, an image of himself in the temple's holy of holies. It will be another abomination that will cause desolation. But when it occurs, the Jews once again will vacate the city of Jerusalem. They will leave it desolate. And we're told in our text that they will escape to the wilderness. We're told, Jesus says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus is saying, when this happens, when this abomination of desolation takes place, the Jews will run for the hills. They'll get out of Dodge. And they will run for their lives. And when we put scriptures together, According to Isaiah 16, we're told where they'll hide. They'll hide in the rock city of Petra, which is today southeast of the Dead Sea. You can go there. You can visit Petra. I've lived there with evangelist, a man by the name of W. Blackstone, stockpiled in the back of his numerous caves, some of these caves, gospel tracts and Hebrew New Testaments. If they're there in Petra today, in hopes, 
when the Jews flee there during the Great Tribulation, they'll be found and led, and the Jews there will see that Jesus is their only salvation. Very interesting. And then it's verse 17. In that day, Jesus says, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. In other words, when this, this fleeing into the wilderness occurs, you know, you, you don't, you don't want to come back and try to grab up your belongings. You, know, you, you need to be ready to leave. We have a hard time understanding, you know, what are you doing on the rooftop of the dunes? But understand in Middle East places today, I mean, the rooftop is kind of a place where people like to lounge and rest and relax. And in the rooftop, it's sort of like you're doing the breeze up there makes it cool. Because let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. You know, can you imagine trying to feed the hills? Can you imagine a small age trying to feed the hills in a herd? Where's the baby pen? Where's the play pen? Where's the stroller? Where's the, where's the, get the diapers? Get, the, get those 40,000 diapers that we're going to need over the next three days. But can you imagine the hassle of trying to flee in a spontaneous moment when, when you're nursing a baby? When you're pregnant? And you can't pee the rooftop? Oh, God! It's taking forever! Because one of those were pregnant and those were nursing babies in those days. This is an effort, of course, for the Exodus and the Christ of Christ. He says, pray that your flight may not be in winter or in the Sabbath. But in Israel, everything's just for the entirety. It's transportation and travel. It's far more difficult than the Sabbath. And here's why. Because 99% of the operators are at home observing the Sabbath rituals. Remember, we're in Israel. We always try to avoid the cities on the Sabbath. We usually go down to the Dead Sea or open to the Golan Heights or something on Saturday. Because the cities come to a halt. People be saying this. People are observing the Sabbath day and we have to see. And the buses don't do that. That's clearly one. But then, there will be great tribulation. Such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. This abomination of desolation was the middle of the great tribulation. Revelation 12 tells us that at this point, Satan is going to be booted out of heaven. And he is going to be so furious at God that he is going to turn his attention and his anger and view it on God's kids. This last three and a half years are indeed a time of great tribulation such as the world has never seen. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 6 through 16. Satan's wrath will make the Holocaust look like a picnic. But remember, remember who Jesus is speaking to here. This is important. He's speaking to residents of Judea. He's speaking to people who observe the Sabbath. That's the Jews. That's who he's speaking to. He's not speaking to the church. He's speaking to the Israel. But that the flock may not be in the south. That would mean nothing to the church, to Gentile Christians. That would mean nuts to the Jews. Because at this point, the Jews would have been, I mean, I'm sorry, at this point, the church would have been natural. The Jews that would be having to deal with this terrible persecution. Let's point to
He's saying, look, if he says, hey, he's here in the desert, don't go out to him, don't believe him. Or, look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not be deceived. What does that mean? Well, you know, it's interesting. In the early 1900s, the Jehovah's Witnesses predicted that Jesus would return to earth in 1917. They, they, they named the date. When he didn't show up, they reset the date to 1925. Again, no return of Jesus. So then they said that Jesus had come spiritually in 1917, but he was reigning in an inner room. Yet here Jesus says specifically, if they say you're in an inner room, don't believe him. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, the second coming will be no secret coming. When Jesus returns, the world will know. He won't be hiding in the desert. He won't be secluded away in some inner room. He is coming like a bolt of lightning. He will split the eastern skies and wage war on the armies of the earth. That's why it says in verse 28, For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. When Jesus returns, in addition, there will be carnage and purpose. You know, at the rapture, Jesus prepares a feast for his church. At the second coming, he's going to prepare a feast for the vultures. During the great tribulation, heaven will be holy ground for the church, but this wicked world will be a battleground between Jesus and those forces that would like to prevent his kingdom from coming. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Again, I refer you to the book of Revelation. It describes in vivid detail some catastrophic judgments that will literally rock the planet and the physical universe as we know it off its foundation. And then finally, the doomsday clock will strike midnight. Isaiah 24, verse 20, predicts the same day. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. Credible judgments are going to come upon this earth as a result of, of its wickedness and its rejection of Jesus. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming from the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. While the earth is recoiling and reeling from this upheaval, some kind of sign will appear in the heavens. The sign of the Son of Man, Jesus calls it. Now what this sign be, will be, no one knows. Perhaps it will be a sign of the cross. Maybe it will be the kind of glory of God and radiating and pulsating throughout the heavens. But when the nations see this sign, rather than repent, that they rally their forces together and they muster up their final charge, this sign of the Son of Man sets in motion the final showdown. The armies of the Antichrist will rally together on the field of Megiddo. We call it Armageddon. And they will try to thwart the coming of God's kingdom. The final chapter in the war of Jerusalem will end when Jesus crushes his enemies and takes possession, possession of the world that belongs to him to pay for it on the cross. When the Jews see the sign of the Son of Man, when the wicked see the sign of the Son of Man, they're going to prepare for a showdown. But when the Jews see the sign of the Son of Man, suddenly it's going to hit them. What they've done. They've rejected Jesus. That he is the true Messiah. And they're going to repent. Chapter 12, verse 10 tells us, They will look on Jesus and they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Israel will finally trust Jesus as their Messiah. And at that time, Jesus will send his angels to the great sound of the trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four men from one end of heaven to the other. But during the great tribulation, the Jews will have been driven from their homeland. Did you know that even today, there are more Jews in New York 
They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. God sets no date because he wants us living every day as if it were the day. Jesus says that the days before the fire will be very similar to the days before the flood. You remember, no one believed in Noah. No one believed his warnings. They thought he was a nut. They dismissed him. They wrote him off. It had never rained before. In the days of Noah, it was business as usual. Jesus says people were marrying. They were giving in marriage. They were pursuing careers. They were having babies. Oh, my, they were buying homes, signing 30-year mortgages with no flood insurance. Hey, and this is pretty much what's going on in the world today. We're on the brink of God's judgment, yet people around us are oblivious. Sometimes we act as if judgment is 10 billion years away when we know it's right around the corner. When Jesus comes for his church, the world is going to be shocked, like in the days of Noah when judgment came. They're going to be groping for an explanation. And that's when I'm hoping that many of the people I've witnessed to, and I've warned about these events, will remember what I've said. And in that day, they'll repent and come to Jesus. Jesus speaks now of the rapture of the church in the next few verses. Verses 40 through 44. Then two men will be in the field. And we'll close with these verses. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now, I have, throughout my study, I have assumed that the rapture of the church is going to come before this great tribulation. Have you noticed that? Here's my reasoning why. Notice the picture that's developing here in this chapter. On the one hand, the return of Jesus is depicted as a colossal, obvious, renowned event on the earth. It occurs after everyone sees the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, I mean, God gives notice to the earth that stuff is up, that His Son is about to come. On the other hand, we're also told in this chapter that the return of Jesus comes suddenly and unexpectedly. As in the days of Noah, people are just going on business as usual. No one knows what's up until suddenly, boom, He returns. On the one hand, a battle ensues at His coming. On the other hand, it's as the days of Noah. People are marrying, giving in marriage, signing mortgages, having babies. Well, wait a which is it? Is, is it sudden? Or do people know? Is things business as usual? Or is there a battle coming? Which is it? The answer is both. For there are actually two second comings of Jesus described in the New Testament. You see, before Daniel's 70th week, this last seven years of great tribulation, Jesus is going to come unexpectedly for his church. He is going to return in the clouds to gather us up. You know, the Bible teaches a doctrine that we call imminence, that Jesus can come at any time. You can only believe in the doctrine of imminence if you put the rapture before the great tribulation. Because the great tribulation is marked out for us. We know the midpoint. It's the abomination of desolation. If you put the rapture at the end of the Great Tribulation, you can't believe in imminence because you know that it's three and a half years after the abomination. Everybody will know when it's going to happen. That's why the rapture has to occur before the Great Tribulation because we believe that Jesus can come at any moment, at any time. The doctrine of imminence. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, talks about the rapture. It says that Jesus is going to come in the clouds and he is going to snatch us up. Caught, we'll be caught up in the clouds, literally snatched away. It's, in the Latin Bible, it's the word raptus, from which we get our word rapture. Don't let anyone tell you that the rapture isn't in the Bible. It is if you're reading a Latin Bible. Rapture, rapturus, in the Greek it's harpazo. 
that at the end of the seven years of tribulation, Jesus will return not in the clouds. Before the tribulation, he returns in the clouds. After the tribulation, he sets his foot down on the Mount of Olives. The mountain splits in two, and he comes to reign and rule over the earth and establish his kingdom. Revelation 19 describes the second coming, Jesus riding on a white horse, armed to battle hostile armies that are preventing his takeover. He comes in the beginning of the seven years to rapture the church. He comes at the end of the seven years to bring judgment and to establish his kingdom. Now, note the format that Jesus is using here in the Olivet Discourse. He's using the format of a typical sermon. People point out that Jesus mentions the rapture after he talks about the tribulation. Thus, the rapture must occur after the great tribulation. That's not so. Jesus here is just teaching a sermon. He's delivering a sermon. And he's saying, he isn't giving a chronological timeline here in Matthew 24. Remember, this is a sermon. And how do you preach sermons? Well, you know, you discuss the events. You describe the warnings. Then at the end, you give the people an invitation to respond. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He, he's saying that, look, you, you see what's going to come. You see the tribulation that's going to come about. You see the signs that are going to signal that that tribulation has been coming. That's why he then brings up the rapture at the end. He says, but you don't have the experience that tribulation. One will be taken, the other will be left. You know, I'm giving you an escape. I'm giving you a, a salvation. You know, if you'll put your trust in me, you know, you can be raptured out off of this planet before the judgment comes down. The church will go up before the judgment comes down. Because one will be taken and the other will be left. And this is what will happen at the rapture of the church. Jesus will come for those of us who are His, who are watching for His return. And those who are not will be left behind to endure the world's most horrible period of history. So you better get right or you're going to get left. But know this, Jesus says, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Landon Brooks was a reporter for a TV station in Pennsylvania, Alatoonia, Pennsylvania. He was doing a special on how to protect your home from burglars. In fact, he used his own home for demonstration. On TV, he walked through his home to show the security measures that he had implemented and to provide security tips for his peace, his report on the television. What Brooks didn't realize is that burglars were also watching his show. But they were casing the joint while watching him on TV. And one night, while Brooks was on the air, burglars broke in and cleaned him up. But Jesus says that he's coming like a thief in the night. He knows where you live. He's cast your joint a number of times. He knows where you live. In an instant, you'll leave this planet or you'll be left behind. And the question is, are you ready? Are you living on the edge of your seat? Guys, there's only one departure time. You miss this flight? Uh-huh. There's more to departure. Make sure that your faith is in Jesus. Be ready for his soon return. And next week, we're going to talk, well, not next Father's Day, we're going to talk about how to be ready. In chapter 24, he gives us information about the end times. In the next four parables, he gives us inspiration for the end times. He's going to encourage us to get ready for his soon return. So we'll stop there tonight. We'll finish chapter 24 and 25.